Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show number 102, Edgar Allan Poe. As you may have noticed, I'm not the Starship Sofa's fearless leader, Tony C. Smith. For one thing, he's a boy and I'm a girl. And for another, my accent isn't nearly as interesting as his. But our intrepid commander has temporarily ceded the helm of the starship sofa to my good self, Amy H. Sturgis, so that I might host a birthday tribute for one of the pioneers of the short story, a luminary of gothic horror, the father of detective fiction, a great giant of early science fiction, and one of my all-around favorite gentlemen, Edgar Allan Poe, who turns 200 years old on January 19, 2009. And he doesn't look a day over 40. So, I've slipped off my plushy Cthulhu slippers and curled up on the sofa, made myself at home, poured myself a glass. Let's pretend it's a Montiato. So, please join me in celebrating the life, the works, and the legacy of Poe. Poe's poetry and prose are justly considered to be immortal, but perhaps the most compelling and mysterious story he left us was his own. Poe was born in Boston, Massachusetts, in the United States, on January 19th, 1809. Just to put that in science fiction genre history context, that means that he was nine when the mother of science fiction, the British Mary Shelley, published what is arguably the very first work of modern science fiction, Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. It also means he was 19 when the great genius of scientific romance, Jules Verne, was born in France. Poe's early life had all the ingredients of a great and poignant tragedy. His father was David Poe. Edgar never really knew him, as he abandoned the family when Edgar was an infant. His mother, Elizabeth, had immigrated from England. She was a celebrated, beautiful, and beloved actress who traveled all over the United States performing on the stage. Before David and Elizabeth's marriage disintegrated, the two had three children, Henry, Edgar in the middle, and baby Rosalie. Raising the children then fell to Elizabeth's shoulders alone. She contracted what was then called consumption, which is now called tuberculosis, and after a long and painful fight, she succumbed in 1811. Little Edgar was so young he didn't even remember his mother, but he kept a small painted portrait of her, a miniature, and he apparently revered her memory. The three children were split up. Uh, The eldest son went to the grandmother, the baby daughter to another family, and Edgar went to friends of his late mother's, Mr. and Mrs. John Allen. Mrs. Allen adored Edgar, and he adored her as well. Feelings were not so positive between Edgar and Mr. Allen. He was a Scottish, rough-and-ready, up-by-his-bootstraps, self-made merchant, and he didn't have a lot of time for the sensitive Poe. There seems to also have been some tension in the fact that he made possible for Edgar 
an excellent education, a real Southern gentleman's education. For example, he went to school in England for five years. He learned Latin and French and math and history. Essentially, he had all of the opportunities that Allen himself did not have, and even Edgar's devotion to Allen's wife didn't seem to bridge that gap that was growing between the two. I should also mention because. Loving and losing women seem to be an ongoing, repeated theme in his life. That there's good evidence that in his early teens he nursed a secret adolescent crush on the beautiful and accomplished mother of one of his friends, who, when he was fifteen, died of brain cancer. Sadly for Poe, his foster mother, Mrs. Allen. Also contracted the dread disease that took his mother, tuberculosis. She lingered for a long time on her sick bed before finally dying when Poe was twenty. Her illness further widened the schism between him and Allen, in part because Allen conducted affairs、uh, with other women while his wife was dying. In fact, in his own house, and this outraged Poe, and so. Once again, he was rejected by a father figure when Allen essentially turned his back on Poe. When Allen died, he left money to all of his illegitimate children, but none to Poe. He did pay for Poe's attendance at the University of Virginia, but he paid only for the classes themselves, not for other things such as, for example, food. And so Poe found himself so destitute that he at times broke and burned the furniture in his dorm room for fuel in order to stay warm. I painted a rather dismal picture of Poe here, but that's not the whole story. Poe was a gifted athlete. When you think of that familiar emo Poe picture that you get in your head at the mere mention of his name, you don't think of athlete, but in fact he was one. He was somewhat famous in the area for swimming seven miles on the James River against the tide of three miles per hour, which was considered to be quite an accomplishment. And at college, he was involved in sports very successfully. He was also recognized by his peers as something of a genius. He was taken to drawing all over the walls of his dorm room, for example. Tremendous illustrations, and his fellow students would gather in his room to listen to his stories. Apparently, at the time, they knew that he would be destined for some kind of greatness, but they weren't sure whether he would become an artist or a writer. What he became at the University of Virginia, however, was a debtor, and in order to escape his mounting debts, he left school and enlisted in the army. In the army, he was quite successful. He attained the rank of sergeant major and was even sent to the prestigious West Point. He was very successful, too successful, more successful than he wanted to be. He realized that his goal was to be a poet and not a soldier, and it's thought that he purposefully broke some of the rules there at West Point so he would be dismissed. For a short while, while he was waiting to. Become a cadet at West Point, he lived with his aunt and his first cousin, a young girl named Virginia Eliza Clem. Remember that it's important later. After he left West Point, he went to New York City, where he published some of his poetry and submitted stories to magazines. They were all rejected at that point. All but one, a science fiction tale, in fact. The message found in a bottle, which won a contest and essentially won him a job, first as a staff writer and critic, later as an editor of the Southern Literary Messenger, which was based in Richmond, Virginia, and which published fiction, poetry, nonfiction reviews and historical notes. Poe was an excellent editor, but it was his work as a critic that was really remarkable. He became one of the foremost U.S. literary critics of his day. With *The Messenger* alone, he published 37 reviews of 
books and periodicals from the United States and abroad. He also worked with a number of other journals, such as American Review, A Whig Journal, Burton's Gentleman's Magazine, Graham's Magazine, Godey's Ladies Book, The Stylus, Broadway Journal, etc. He was known for being really ruthless in his literary criticism. He did not care about making friends or influencing people. He was infamous, for example, for charging Longfellow with plagiarizing Alfred Lord Tennyson. In the words of his fellow critic, James Russell Lowell, he was, quote, the most discriminating, philosophical, and fearless critic upon imaginative works who has written in America. The take-no-prisoners contentiousness of his reviews, however, translated into more readers, more subscribers. It was also in The Messenger that he published some of his famous works, such as Berenice and Morella. Thus established in Richmond, Poe moved his aunt and his cousin to live with him, and there he married Virginia Eliza Clem. It was not unheard of in that time for first cousins to marry. It was unusual, however, that Poe was 27 and Virginia Clem was, cue the drumroll, 13. There are a couple of different theories that scholars and historians have about this. Some say that Poe worshipped his cousin, put her up on a pedestal, and thus was more interested in protecting her and providing for her than consummating the marriage. Others suggest that Poe wasn't really into women anyway, and so really lived with her more like brother and sister than husband and wife. Others, based on more contemporary accounts, suggest that the two slept apart for the first couple of years of their marriage and then were married in every sense of the word. Regardless of what you do with that, it is clear that the two were devoted to each other, and there are many accounts of a really happy stories of them being seen laughing and playing leapfrog out of doors, or of him tutoring her in Latin and reading to her. It seems apparent that whatever form the love took, the two loved each other deeply. And here, I think, is one of the keys, not only to Edgar Allan Poe the man, but also Edgar Allan Poe the writer. The two were married in 1835. In 1842, as she was singing for Poe, a blood vessel burst in her throat, and she began coughing blood. This was the first overt manifestation of the fact that she had, like his brother, like his foster mother and his biological mother, before her contracted tuberculosis. She lived another five years and eventually died at the age of 25. We can trace how this terrible loss, a loss that Poe himself said was the worst evil that a man could suffer, a wife whom I loved as no man ever loved before, had fallen ill and died. How this loss shone through in what he wrote. First of all, as his personal life was falling apart around his ears, it seems he turned to his lauded ratiocination, logical reasoning and thought, to find some order in the midst of personal chaos. He did this through his science fiction. He also did it by writing Mysteries by creating the first great fictional detective, see Auguste Dupin, by writing works based on logic and reasoning, he was in a sense creating a place of sanity for himself. Now, critics debate how much sanity he actually had at this point, because secondly, during her illness and after her death, Poe turned increasingly to drink, and had periods that some call insanity, when he really did kind of go psychologically off the deep end. However far he fell into those depths, the psychological insight that he got fueled works of gothic horror, such as The Telltale Heart, The Black Cat, The Cask of Amontillado, all of which have been praised for what amounts to 
very early psychoanalysis, the way Poe delves very deeply into the disturbed mind. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, you see the repeated theme of lost love, or even love brought back from the dead, in his works of horror. Certainly, you can see echoes of mourning the lost love in his most famous work, The Raven. Tell this soul with a sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore. Clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore. Quote the Raven, Nevermore. And of course, there are echoes in his verse Annabelle Lee as well. But our love, it was stronger by far than the love of those who were older than we, of many far wiser than we. And neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And don't forget his stories either. The narrator of Eleonora is preparing to marry his cousin. The Oblong Box is a story about a man who's transporting his young dead wife's body by boat. And then there's the story that Poe considered to be his very best, Lygia, in which the title character suffers a long and lingering death. Here's a quick taste, just so you can get the flavor. An hour thus elapsed when, could it be possible? I was a second time aware of some vague sound issuing from the region of the bed. I listened in extremity of horror. The sound came again. It was a sigh. Rushing to the corpse, I saw, distinctly saw, a tremor upon the lips. In a minute afterward, they relaxed, disclosing a bright line of the pearly teeth. Amazement now struggled in my bosom with the profound awe which had hitherto reigned there alone. I felt that my vision grew dim, that my reason wandered, and it was only by a violent effort that I at length succeeded in nerving myself to the task which duty thus once more had pointed out. There was now a partial glow upon the forehead and upon the cheek and throat. A perceptible warmth pervaded the whole frame. There was even a slight pulsation of the heart. The lady lived. And with redoubled ardor, I betook myself to the task of restoration. I chafed and bathed the temples and the hands, and used every exertion which experience and no little medical reading could suggest, but in vain. Suddenly the color fled, the pulsation ceased, the lips resumed the expression of the dead, and in an instant afterward, the whole body took upon itself the icy chilliness, the livid hue, the intense rigidity, the sunken outline and all the loathsome peculiarities of that which has been, for many days, a tenant of the tomb. As Virginia's life faded and flickered out, Poe suffered professionally as well as personally. He left the Southern Literary Messenger to work with George R. Graham as editor for Graham's magazine. He was very successful there. He published The Murders in the Rue Morgue. He challenged readers to send in cryptograms, which he never failed to solve, and he raised the circulation of the magazine from 5,000 to 35,000 copies. But he left it because he wanted to start his own magazine. He tried to start one called The Stylus, but it failed. The money he made from his own publications of poetry and short stories was minimal, barely enough to pay the bills. He became desperately poor. He accepted an editorship at the Broadway Journal, but that ran out of money, and once again he was out of a permanent job. And Virginia's lingering illness and death sent him into a downward spiral of depression and physical collapse. By 1849, however, he seemed to be getting his act back together. He had renewed a childhood romance with a woman named Sarah Royster Shelton, proposed to her, and she had accepted. He had joined the Sons of Temperance in an effort to kick his drinking habit, and for the first time in years he seemed really optimistic about his future. And that's where it gets 
really, really strange. I mean, strange even for Poe. On September 27th, he left Richmond to go to New York. En route there, he stopped in Philadelphia to stay with a friend of his. On September 30th, he was supposed to make the last leg of his journey to New York, but somehow ended up on a train to Baltimore instead. The next few days are an absolute mystery. But on October 3rd, Poe was found at Gunner's Hall, which was a Baltimore pub, in very bad shape and was taken to the hospital. He lapsed in and out of consciousness. He was never able to explain what happened to him. How he had ended up in a city he didn't intend to visit, not even wearing his own clothes, in a state of delirium. While at the hospital, he reportedly called out the name Reynolds repeatedly, but scholars are unsure exactly to whom that refers. And then, according to contemporary accounts, he said, Lord, help my poor soul. And he died at five in the morning on October 7th, 1849, at the age of 40. There's a long list of theories as to what exactly happened to Poe. At the time, his cause of death was reported as congestion of the brain or cerebral inflammation. Over the years, people have suggested he simply drank himself to death or that he had heart disease or syphilis or epilepsy or cholera or even rabies. For a long time, one of the theories was that he had been a victim of cooping. Cooping was an illegal practice, but unfortunately a widespread one in which groups took vulnerable people and either threatened them, beat them, or gave them enough alcohol to drink that they were easily influenced, and then changed their clothes and moved them from one voting place to another, giving them different identities each time, in order to pack the ballot boxes in favor of a given candidate. Since Poe was found shortly after an election, it seemed likely that he might have fallen victim to one of these groups that tried to use him to cast illegal votes. However, the most current and perhaps plausible theory, based in part on the exhumation of Poe's body and the analysis of his remains, is that he suffered from a brain tumor that was slowly killing him and left him in the debilitated state in which he was found in Baltimore in his final hours. But wait, there's more. Poe's bizarre story doesn't end with his death. He was buried on the grounds of Westminster Hall and Burying Ground, which is now a part of the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore. At first, he was buried toward the back of the cemetery with a very modest funeral. He didn't even have a proper headstone because the headstone that had been ordered for him was sitting in the monument yard awaiting shipment when a train derailed, ran off its tracks, plowed through the monument yard, and destroyed the headstone. Eventually, Poe was reburied on October 1st, 1875, close to the front of the churchyard. An elegant memorial was placed there in his memory. In the meantime, the cemetery in which Poe's beloved wife, Virginia, had been buried was destroyed. No one claimed her remains. And so one of Poe's early biographers, William Gill, took her bones and put them in a box and stored them under his bed for years. Hey, I told you this was strange. Finally, her remains were buried with her husband's on January 19, 1885, which was Edgar Allan Poe's 76th birthday. I'm going to end this segment on Edgar Allan Poe's life with one of his most autobiographical poems and one of my personal favorites, Alone. From childhood's hour, I have not been as others were. I have not seen as others saw. I could not bring my passions from a common spring. From the same source I have not taken my sorrow. I could not awaken my heart to joy at the same tone. And all I loved, I loved alone. Then, in my childhood, in the dawn of a most stormy life, was drawn from every depth of good and ill the mystery which binds me still. From the torrent, 
or the fountain, from the red cliff of the mountain, from the sun that round me rolled in its autumn tint of gold, from the lightning in the sky as it passed me flying by, from the thunder and the storm, and the cloud that took the form when the rest of heaven was blue, of a demon in my view. Okay, now that we're all drowning in a vast ocean of ennui, let's turn our attention to the importance of Poe's works. I've already mentioned his impact as a literary critic. It's also important to remember that he was one of the first U.S. authors to pioneer and champion the short story as a literary form. In fact, the only complete novel he wrote was the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket in 1838. All of the rest of his prose was either short stories or essays. So, aside from poetry, the bulk of his literary production was short stories. It's also worth noting he was one of the first public and popular authors in the United States, known as. Making his living solely from writing. Now, granted, it wasn't much of a living.、Uh, he was barely keeping things together, and often had to accept money from、uh, family and friends in order to pay all the bills. But he was a professional author, one of a new breed in the United States. Poe was also a luminary in the genre of Gothic horror. Now the Gothic wasn't new. Its formal origins can be traced all the way back to 1764, when Horace Walpole published *The Castle of Otranto*. Science fiction scholar Brian Aldiss has argued, quite rightly, I think, that the Gothic tradition gave birth to, or at least was an important progenitor of, science fiction. And certainly, you see the Gothic influence in Mary Shelley's *Frankenstein*. But the Gothic had primarily been a European phenomenon, mostly out of England, France, and Germany. At the point Poe came along, really the only U.S. author that could clearly be seen as writing in the Gothic tradition was Charles Brockton Brown. Nathaniel Hawthorne would follow Poe not long after Poe's work, but Poe reimagined the Gothic and did some really interesting things with it. And some of his best-known works we can consider to be conscious contributions to the Gothic genre. One of the subjects that comes up over and over again in early Gothic literature is the Spanish Inquisition. Anne Radcliffe wrote about it.、Uh, Matthew Lewis in *The Monk*, Charles Maturin in *Melmoth the Wanderer*, and Poe revisited that in his 1842 work *The Pit and the Pendulum*. In particular, Poe recognized his debt to the mother of Gothic fiction, Anne Radcliffe, who wrote such works as *The Italian* and *The Mysteries of Udolpho*, and he even mentions her by name in his Gothic 1842 short story *The Oval Portrait*. Perhaps his greatest achievement in Gothic horror, or at least my personal favorite, is. The 1839 masterpiece, *The Fall of the House of Usher*. It used the tried-and-true Gothic trope of tying a decaying building to a decaying individual or a decaying family, while also playing to Poe's strengths, writing about entropy, madness, and death. In 1842, he called upon his own biography, the experience of losing family members over and over again to tuberculosis, with the Mask of Red Death, and in 1844, tapped into another recurring Gothic theme, but with his own twist of psychological insight, creating the story that, frankly, creeped me out more than any other Poe work, with the premature burial. In creating a distinctly U.S. form of Gothic, he not only paved the way for other U.S. writers in the future to jump on the same train, specifically people like H.P. Lovecraft, but he also opened the door for what would later become the Southern Gothic, which would include such authors as William Faulkner, Harper Lee, Flannery O'Connor, and more recently Joyce Carol Oates. Way to be a pioneer, Edgar! 
I also mentioned that Poe was the father of the modern detective story. Scholars of detective fiction mark the beginning of the entire genre as 1841, when Poe published *The Murders in the Rue Morgue*. This featured his fictional detective, the eccentric C. Auguste Dupin, who was brought in to consult when the police were at wit's end and couldn't solve a given crime. These stories employed the ratiocination that Poe loved so much—the rational thought, a combination of logic and intuition and inference—to solve cases. Dupin reappeared in *The Mystery of Marie Roget* in 1843 and *The Purloined Letter* in 1844. *Mystery of Marie Roget* is particularly of note because it's based on. A real-life murder mystery: the death of a woman named Mary Cecilia Rogers. And Poe utilized a lot of forensic science in this story. So the next time you turn on the television and watch a forensic science show, and I don't care where you are in the world, I know you have them. And they play that spooky music, and the detectives gather all the evidence, and then go to the lab and find out what the experts say. Just remember. Thank Edgar Allan Poe for making forensic science cool. Certainly, we wouldn't have had literary detectives such as Sherlock Holmes or Miss Marple or others if we first hadn't had C. Auguste Dupin. And in fact, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle mentioned C. Auguste Dupin in his very first Sherlock Holmes novel. Although, in true Holmes fashion, Holmes seemed to consider himself by far the superior of the two. And freaky fact: although Dupin was born with Poe, he didn't die with Poe. In fact, he lives still. We saw him in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine in stories by Michael Harrison in the 1960s. He appears in a juvenile novel by Avi called *The Man Who Was Poe*. He runs around and solves mysteries, and it's only at the end that we discover that Dupin is actually Edgar Allan Poe himself. In not one but two novels, the 1997 *The Murder of Edgar Allan Poe* by George Egan Hatfrey and the 2006 *The Poe Shadow* by Matthew Pearl, Dupin comes back to solve the mystery of Edgar Allan Poe's death. He shows up in two issues of *The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen* by Alan Moore. He makes an appearance in *The Kind-Hearted Torturer* by John Peel. The Black Thorn by Roger Zelazny and Fred Saberhagen, the work of Betrayal by Mario Brelik, and most recently in 2007's Edgar Allan Poe on Mars by Jean-Marc and Randy Lafissier. You superhero fans might also remember that Batman's super crime-solving computer, which he linked to the FBI, the CIA, Interpol, etc. Before it became rather unimaginatively called the Bat Computer, was first introduced as Dupin. It's easy, considering his many other accomplishments, to forget that Edgar Allan Poe was also a tremendous influence on science fiction. One of the works of which he was most proud, *Eureka: An Essay on the Material and Spiritual Universe*, which, despite its title, Isn't exactly an essay; it's a work of fiction. Anticipated the Big Bang theory by well over half a century. I highly recommend the Penguin Classics anthology, *The Science Fiction of Edgar Allan Poe*, which is edited by Harold Beaver. And here I'm going to read you just an excerpt from the back. The 16 stories in this volume, including the celebrated *Eureka*. Reveal Poe as both apocalyptic prophet and pioneer of science fiction. Through this new speculative fiction, he sought to be the comprehensive theorist and seer of an age dominated by electromagnetism, which witnessed the intensive exploitation of mechanical inventions and a parallel boon in all forms of transcendentalism. His tales of galvanism, mesmerism, time travel, resurrection of the dead, and demonic possession. Are marked by a bravado of thought, an imaginative sweep, and a sheer effrontery which is breathtaking. Stories such as "Message Found in a Bottle," 
a descent into the maelstrom, the balloon hoax, mesmeric revelation, the power of words, and the facts in the case of Monsieur Valdemar, are among his greatest science fiction accomplishments. I'll admit that my own favorite of these is Melanta Tata, which is framed as a letter written by a man who is traveling by balloon in the year 2848 and looking back on relics of his past, our present. Not only is it very clever in its description of, for example, travel by balloon, but it's also extremely funny. In the way it describes the inaccuracies, the incorrect assumptions that come from trying to read backward into the past, let me give you a little example. He describes an inscription that was found on a marble slab. The inscription is: "This cornerstone of a monument to the memory of George Washington was laid with appropriate ceremonies on the nineteenth day of October, eighteen forty-seven." The anniversary of the surrender of Lord Cornwallis to General Washington at Yorktown, A.D. 1781, under the auspices of the Washington Monument Association of the City of New York. Now the author attempts to explain to the recipient of his letter exactly what this strange relic from the past means, and he says, "From the few words thus preserved, we glean several important items of knowledge." Not the least interesting of which is the fact that a thousand years ago, actual monuments had fallen into disuse, as was all very proper. The people contenting themselves, as we do now, with a mere indication of the design to erect a monument at some future time, a cornerstone being cautiously laid by itself, solitary and alone. Excuse me for quoting the great American poet Benton, as a guarantee of the magnanimous intention. We ascertain too very distinctly from this admirable inscription the how, as well as the where and the what, of the great surrender in question. As to where it was Yorktown, wherever that was, and as to the what it was General Cornwallis, no doubt some wealthy dealer in corn. He was surrendered. The inscription commemorates the surrender of what? Why of Lord Cornwallis? The only question is. What could the savages wish him surrendered for? But when we remember that these savages were undoubtedly cannibals, we are led to the conclusion that they intended him for sausage. As to the how of the surrender, no language can be more explicit. Lord Cornwallis was surrendered for sausage under the auspices of the Washington Monument Association. No doubt, a charitable institution for the depositing of cornerstones. Ha! That Poe—he was a real jokester, wasn't he? In other works of science fiction, Poe proved himself to be a master of verisimilitude. That is, he could sling technobabble at the reader, and make it sound so convincing that the most outlandish things seemed plausible, even probable. How important, you may ask, was Poe's lasting contribution to science fiction? Well. In Thomas Dish's book *The Dreams Our Stuff Is Made Of: How Science Fiction Conquered the World*, Dish challenges the idea that Mary Shelley is the font of all science fiction, and suggests instead that the main source of the entire genre is Edgar Allan Poe. He said that Poe anticipated science fiction in seven ways in his fiction. In fact, that all of these ways can be found in even one of his stories. First, mesmerism. Second, dreams coming true. Third, chip on the shoulder superiority. Number four, genuine visionary power. Number five, great special effects. And perhaps least flatteringly of all, number six, gross-out sophomoric humor. Lastly, number seven, Dish says that Poe manifests a divine madness that speaks to the entire tradition. Dish isn't all hearts and roses about Poe. In fact, at times he calls him an embarrassing ancestor to the genre, but he does appreciate his historical importance. And he's not the only one. The Cambridge Companion to Edgar Allan Poe, 
notes him as the man who invents science fiction. Meanwhile, Adam Roberts of Infinity Plus notes that Poe's 1835 short story, The Unparalleled Adventure of One Hans Fall, in which the main character goes to the moon in a balloon that he makes himself, secures Poe's place as a key founder of science fiction. And here, I think, is a fitting place to turn our attention to Poe's legacy. I've already mentioned some of the ways in which Poe's work has been tremendously influential. Poe inspired generations of writers. Jules Verne, for example, wrote a sequel to the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. H.P. Lovecraft considered himself to be Edgar Allan Poe's disciple, perhaps the most compelling way we can take stock of Poe's influence today is to consider three recently published anthologies and consider both the range and quality of their impressive contributors. The first of these is Poe's Children, edited by horror great Peter Straub and published in October of 2008. Some of its contributors will be instantly recognizable to Starship Sofa listeners such as Elizabeth Hand, M. John Harrison, Ramsey Campbell, Thomas Ligotti, Stephen King, Joe Hill, Neil Gaiman, and John Crowley, among others. The anthology Poe appeared at the beginning of January 2009, edited by Ellen Datlow, and again includes representatives of fantasy, science fiction, horror, and mystery. Contributors include, among others, Pat Cadigan, Sharon McCrum, Lucia Shepard, Susie McKee Charnas, and Kim Newman. Lastly, Stuart Kaminsky edits another January 2009 publication, On a Raven's Wing, New Tales in Honor of Edgar Allan Poe, which includes contributions from Mary Higgins Clark, Thomas H. Cook, James W. Hall, Rupert Holmes, Don Winslow, and others. Over the years, there have been a number of literary tributes and homages to Poe. Some have been continuations of Poe's stories. For example, Robert McGammon's 1984 novel Usher's Passing picks up where The Fall of the House of Usher left off and follows the descendants of the Usher family and their haunted, tormented and cursed history. Others consider aspects of the mythology surrounding Edgar Allan Poe. For example, the 2001 novel In a Strange City by Laura Lippmann. This novel considers the mystery behind the Poe toaster. The Poe toaster himself is actually a real phenomenon. Every January 19th since 1949, a mysterious man, it now seems like generations of mysterious men, have come to Poe's graveside and lifted a cognac toast. The identity of the man or men has never been confirmed, but it's become a tradition that others gather at the cemetery and wait and watch the Poe toaster. The mystery surrounding this loyal mourner of Poe has become a legend unto itself. I'd like to draw your attention to three of my very favorite tributes to Edgar Allan Poe, all three of which are short stories. The first is The Incomparable Usher Two by Ray Bradbury. It was first published as Carnival of Madness in Thrilling Wonder Stories in April 1950. It later became part of The Martian Chronicles. As many of Bradbury's works do, Usher II rails against the evils of censorship. The protagonist constructs a replica of Poe's House of Usher on Mars and uses it essentially as a death trap for the censors who come after him. The story not only directly references Fall of the House of Usher, but also Murders in the Rue Morgue and The Cask of Amontillado, and other Poe works. The second story was written by Robert Block, of Psycho fame, who was himself 
mentored by H.P. Lovecraft, who, of course, considered himself to be a follower of Poe. Bloch's story was The Man Who Collected Poe, which was first published in 1951, October's issue of Famous Fantastic Mysteries. I won't say too much about this for fear of giving away the ending, but let me just ask you this. What would be the most significant, the most sought-after collector's item for someone who collected Edgar Allan Poe? The ultimate, one-of-a-kind collector's item. The last is a poignant and moving tribute, not just to Poe, but to all of the Gothic genre, mentioning many of the forerunners of Poe, as well as Poe explicitly. And that is Neil Gaiman's Forbidden Brides of the Faceless Slaves in the Nameless House of the Night of Dread Desire, which first appeared in the 2004 anthology Gothic, later in Fantasy, the Best of 2004, and Gaiman's own anthology Fragile Things. And as I said, you can't miss Gaiman's love of Poe in this story. It would take an entirely new show to do justice to the impact of Poe on popular culture, particularly film and television. The first Poe-inspired film was made in 1909, and Poe films have been going strong ever since, with a special impact on the careers of filmmakers such as Roger Corman, Stuart Gordon, and Tim Burton. And don't even get me started on the Simpsons episode, Treehouse of Horror, in which James Earl Jones reads The Raven. That's an episode that has taken on its own cult status. Poe may be gone, but he is definitely not forgotten. The last home in which Poe lived is now preserved as the Edgar Allan Poe Cottage and is located in the Bronx in New York. The first home in which Poe lived that still survives is in Baltimore, and it's preserved as the Edgar Allan Poe House and Museum. It's also the home of the Edgar Allan Poe Society. The Spring Garden Home, in which Poe lived in 1843 and 1844 in Philadelphia, is preserved by the National Park Service as the Edgar Allan Poe National Historic Site. Poe's old dorm room in the University of Virginia is maintained by a group of students and staff who call themselves the Raven Society. And the oldest home in Richmond, Virginia, which wasn't inhabited by Poe but was around when Poe was there, is now the Edgar Allan Poe Museum. It contains items owned by Poe as well as rare first printings of some of Poe's works. And just to hop, skip, and jump away from the Poe Museum is held every year RavenCon, the science fiction convention which takes its name from Poe's most famous poem. And hey, I'll be a guest speaker there this year, so if you happen to be attending, look me up and say hello. We sofa-nauts have to hang together. In the end, we're left with a question. Why, 200 years after his birth, do we still remember Poe? Was it because he put a new twist on an old romantic tradition of the Gothic? Was it because he created an entirely new genre with detective fiction? Was it because his emphases on verisimilitude and ratiocination helped to midwife science fiction into being? Was it because his personal life was as fascinating, as dark, as mysterious as the best of his works? Or is it because he inspired generations of creative souls to make their own dreams and visions realities? Maybe it's a combination of all of these. If you're interested in pursuing these questions further, I have a couple of recommendations for you. If you're looking for a good single-volume biography of Poe, I would recommend Edgar A. Poe, Mournful and Never-Ending Remembrance by Kenneth Silverman. There are also several websites that are great for exploring Poe. The Edgar Allan Poe Society of Baltimore has a website that deals with the works of Poe, includes a selection of lectures and articles about him, and also archives articles from the journal Poe Studies. 
That website is available at www.eapo.org. And again, that's the Edgar Allan Poe Society of Baltimore. The Poe Museum of Richmond has a website that deals not only with the museum, its store, and currently its 200th anniversary celebration of Poe's life, but also with other aspects of his biography, selected works, and educational resources about both. That is www.poemuseum.org. And again, that's the Edgar Allan Poe Museum in Richmond, Virginia. Lastly, I recommend Poe Stories, which offers an exploration of the short stories of Poe, including summaries, quotes, a gallery, a timeline, and a word list, as well as an extensive list of links. That is poestories.com. I'd like to conclude my celebration of Poe's life with a short poem by H.P. Lovecraft about Poe, inspired by the St. John's Churchyard in Providence, Rhode Island. Where once Poe walked. Eternal brood the shadows on this ground, dreaming of centuries that have gone before. Great elms rise solemnly by slab and mound, arched high above a hidden world of yore. Round all the scene a light of memory plays, and dead leaves whisper of departed days, longing for sights and sounds that are no more. Lonely and sad, a specter glides along aisles where of old his living footsteps fell. No common glance discerns him, though his song peals down through time with a mysterious spell. Only the few whose sorcery's secret know espy amidst these tombs the shade of Poe. And that concludes another trip on the Starship Sofa. I promise to return it to Tony without any dents or dings or scratches, but I must admit, while I'm here at the helm, I'm curious to know if it will do warp nine or make the jump to light speed. You'll never know, right? Thank you for joining me in my celebration of Poe's birthday. And it's good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Storyship evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1...